What a great song of worship. Today, we're going to be thinking together about worship restored. And I was thinking as I was singing that song, I've heard that song, and it's, uh, I hear it on the radio occasionally, and sometimes in the office, I'll find it online and listen to it as I'm sitting there in the quiet of my office and just rejoice and praise the Lord with it. And, and there are many times when I've heard that song when I'm alone and I'm by myself, and it's really good, and I, and I appreciate it. But there was something different just now. I hope you noticed that. It was richer and fuller of an experience for me to have you singing along with me. I liked that a lot. Yeah. And, and if you press me on it and said, that, well, Pastor Eric, what's the difference? Same words, same song, it's talking, telling the same story. What's different? I guess I would have a hard time delineating some of those differences. I, it just felt better to me to have you with me in this moment of worship. And this morning, as, I think to get, as, as we start thinking together about what it means to have our worship restored, we have to realize that just that topic, just that title assumes that in the past, worship has been hindered in some way. Worship has not been what it should have been. That our worship as Christians has been suffering to some extent. Therefore, it needs to be restored, needs to be revived. We need a freshness about the whole concept of worship. We need to look again at what we have been offered by our God in this great offer for you and I to enter into His presence in worship. What does that mean? See, I can go way back before March and start articulating where the problem began, especially in America. See, in America, we have a constitutional right to worship our God. Hallelujah. And I thank God for that. And I know you do as well. However, we must also recognize the Achilles heel in that freedom. Because any and all freedoms can easily be taken for granted. As I think about worship in America over the past 200 years, I've seen how easily it has become complacent in our lives. It's, it's almost too easy. It's like, it's like it's always going to be there, so why worry about it? If we miss this week, we'll catch up next week. It's not really a problem because not only is it free for us to gather together in the local church like we do here and now, but also if we miss this, we can find it other places. On our TVs and on our radios and on our computer screens. And when something is that prevalent in the culture, when something is that free and that easy within the culture, before long, if you're not careful and you're not intentional, before long we will find 
complacency kind of drifting in. In the middle of March, our God said, let's, let's take a break. And he sent us all home. And he forced us to think about this thing we call corporate worship. Does it really matter? Does it have a value to you? And what is that value? See, I, I'm convinced that that the concept of worshiping our God is different for those of us who live in the West versus those who live in the East. Let me explain myself for just a moment. The Western world tends to live in, in, in a mindset of compartmentalization. In other words, we learn very quickly to compartmentalize our lives. And what we have done is we have made our worship of the Lord a piece of everything else in our lives. And I, and I say that it's different because I, some of my friends who live in other places in the world, the missionaries that are there will tell us that whether, the, whether you're Islam or Buddhist or, or whatever uh, the Eastern faith that you are, their, their faith seems to be more intrinsic. It, needs to, it seems to be more of an everyday part of their lives and experience. Where in the West, we tend to, to have all these pieces of life and we put our faith as one piece. And therefore, the worship of the Lord has kind of been identified as one thing that we do as Christians. And, and to carry that a step further, what I have seen in the 30 plus years of pastoral ministry that I've been doing, I have seen so many of our people, so many people within the, the Christian community have further compartmentalized to where their Christian faith and particularly their worship of God has been re reserved for Sunday only. So Sunday's the day of worship, and we've remembered the, the Sabbath, so to speak, and we want to come into the Lord's house on Sunday, and we want to do our thing of worship. But for many of us, when we leave the Lord's house on Sunday, we have very little, if any, worship, intentional worship in our lives between 12 o'clock on Sunday morning and uh, 9.30 the following Sunday morning. It's compartmentalized. We've done it. We've checked the box. I think what happened is that God saw this distinction in America between corporate worship and individual worship. And he said, you know, there, there are those that, that want to worship corporately and the church is in, but when church is no longer there or it's no longer Sunday, we don't, I don't hear from them again. So I think God very intentionally said, okay, let's stop that and let's see what happens. And I think a very good thing came from that. I think many of us, for the first time, had to learn what it meant to experience worship outside of the church. And we began to see a rise in individual worship. We began to see families worshiping together in their homes. A beautiful thing. We began to see people taking interest in, in connecting outside of these walls with other believers and finding ways to worship in an individual way on some time and venue outside of Sunday morning down at the local church. I think that's positive. 
Because you see, when I talk about restoring worship, I'm not just talking about getting back to church on Sunday morning. I'm talking about restoring a heart cry that seeks to love and serve and worship our God day in and day out throughout every aspect of our life. So it's not an either or. It's not either corporate worship or individual worship. What God calls us to is both and. Because you see, as as I see that positive side of, of people kind of being forced to worship individually and in their homes, I also have seen a negative that's happened over these last few months. And the negative side is we have started drifting away from this thing called corporate worship. As a culture, we're drifting away. Now, I have been watching the research, and you've heard me say a few of these statistics, but I'm I'm careful to see what is going on in the world around us. And and research tells us that about one-third of our people, the people that were actively engaged in a local church before COVID-19, about one-third of them are not engaged in any kind of worship whatsoever. Here we are three months later. And one of the things that we've lost here is that that concept of the importance of coming together. And and I, I want you to understand, when I talk about worship, we're talking about both and. God has called us not just to corporate worship or not just to individual worship. He has clearly called us to both. And that needs to be restored. That mindset, that hunger, that attitude needs to be restored among the local church. And we're praying here that God would show us again as he builds us back up. Why was it that we had become so compartmentalized? What can we do better this time? What can we learn from what we've just been through the last three or four months? How can we come at this differently so that we don't fall back into that place of complacency as a church? I want you to pray with us about that. I want you to be willing to pray that God would do the hard thing here. That he would do the good thing here to change our mindsets about him and about our worship of him and what that means and how that goes with us, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the rest of the week. And what is our place there? Clearly, there's something for us to learn here, church. Clearly, our God is speaking. And one of the things he's telling us is that we have to approach this thing of worship more fervently than ever before. Because this is one of the areas where we've seen a great deal of change within the church of the Western world. So let's ask together, God, what are you doing? God, what are you teaching? How are we to be restored? Not back to what we had, but to what you would have us to have in the future moving forward. As we think about that together, I want us to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Here we find a a passage of Scripture where we see worship being restored among the people of God. And so I thought it would be a good lesson for us this morning as we think together about what it means for worship to be restored. What does it mean for us to seek to restore worship corporately as well as individually? What's missing and what needs to be added. So here's where we're going to go. And I'm going to begin in 1 Kings chapter 18 with a little bit of the backstory. We're introduced to Elijah, the prophet of God. Here's our main characters for the story. Elijah is God's prophet. He hasn't been very well received. He's one of those hard-nosed prophets that tells it like it is and nobody wants to hear it. 
He's already been run out of town a couple of times, and, and he is just struggling, and God just says, wait, I'm going to use you for something great. He, fa he found himself in this long waiting period where he ended up in the desert, and all these terrible things were happening to him. And then finally God spoke to him and said, now I've got an assignment for you. I want you to go talk to the king. The king's man by the name of Ahab. Ahab was, was uh, introduced to us as being an unholy and ungodly king. He was one of God's kings. He was a king of Israel, the king of God's people. He was definitely an Israelite, but he wasn't godly. And one of the things that he did right away is that he decided to make an alliance. And so he married a woman named Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, let me just say something about Jezebel. She was quite the woman. We know that from Scripture. She wasn't a passive queen. She wasn't the queen that came in and said, Oh, King Ahab, I'm your, you know, I'm your helpmate, and, and I'll just uh, be submissive to you, and we'll just follow after your God, and I'm just going to go where you go and do what you do. Uh -uh, that wasn't Jezebel. Here's what we know. After a few years of Jezebel being queen of Israel, all of Israel had been inundated with the worship of Baal, Jezebel's false god. She'd been busy. She had, she had brought in her way. And she had insisted on her way. She was determining the direction of the people. And the Bible teaches us that Elijah came and he, and he walked in before Ahab and he pointed that prophetic finger in Ahab's face and said, King, you're upsetting all of these people because that woman you married, she has influenced the children of God to turn away from God and to her, God of Baal. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, I am the only prophet of God left in all of Israel. Think about that. And then he said this. We need to decide. You got to make a call, king. After all, you're still a child of God. After all, we are still the people of God. And we're torn between the two. We need to make a call. We need to settle this thing. And so I, I, Elijah, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, came up with this plan. He says, we're, we're going to have a contest, if you will. We're just going to settle this. He said, we're going to go up on the mountain of God. And we'll go up there and we'll bring all of the prophets of Baal who want to come. 450 of them showed up. How many prophets of God? One. And so the people are all gathered around. He said, well, we'll bring the people. We'll come up and we'll have a contest. We'll build some altars. We'll prepare some altars. We'll put some wood on the altars. We'll sacrifice an animal on the altar. And he said, we'll have everything on that mountain except one thing, and that's fire. If you read and study how Old Testament sacrifice took place, it was at the end of that time of sacrifice that they would set fire to the wood and burn it and burn the sacrifice in, in a symbolic way of letting the smoke go up into the nostrils of God as, as an honor and a blessing to him. That was the way it was done. And so fire was always the last thing. It was kind of the climax of that whole sacrificial moment is you light the fire. So we said, we're going to take everything except the fire and then we'll just pray. How about that? 
We'll pray and ask, I'll ask my God and you ask Baal God. And, and whoever brings the fire wins. Now, now Ahab, he loved that idea. He loved it. I personally think he didn't care for Baal at all. He is just afraid of Jezebel. <laughs> That's what I think. And so he's like, this is going to get us off the hook. This is my way out of this thing. We'll find out for sure, and it won't be my fault. So he said, I like it. He liked it so much that he made this edict. He, he sent out the word and said, we're going to do this, and he, and he put it in writing. He said, the God who built, brings fire will be the God of Israel from this day forward. We're just going to settle it. And so they went up on the mountain, and they started. Now, Elijah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm telling the story. You go back and read it. It's 1 Kings chapter 17, 18, and 19. But Elijah did an amazingly tactful thing. I think God was leading him to do this because I'm not sure he had been smart enough to do it on his own. He stepped back and very graciously let the opposition go first. I think that was tactful. Because you see, he knew that they weren't going to get any fire. And so he stood back and he let them go. And they started. They built their altar. They sacrificed their animal. They began to pray for fire. And no fire came. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and no fire came. For six hours they prayed. 450 of them. And no fire came. And then Elijah began to taunt them. I love this. He said, maybe your God's asleep. <laughs> you should get, cry out a little louder and wake him up. And the part that's always baffled me in this story is that they believed him. <laughs> and they started crying out all the louder. As a matter of fact, they were cutting themselves with knives and letting their own blood pour over the altar to show how serious and sincere they were in the belief of their God. I tell you, there's another sermon in there. Doesn't matter how many people they are and how, many, and how sincere those people may be, you can be sincerely wrong. And the majority is not always right. And nothing happened. They finally collapsed from exhaustion. Elijah stepped up and said, now it's my turn. And here we go. I want you to open your Bibles, chapter 18. Because we're going to see, Elijah was pulling his people back to the worship of their God. He wanted worship to be restored in a powerful way. And here's what he did. Let's go to verse 30 and following of chapter 18. 30 and 30, 30, 31, 32. We see this. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Hmm. Let's not look past that. Because I think that is the first step of worship being restored in the Christian life today. In order for true worship to be restored, the altar must be restored. The altar must be restored. 
What is the altar about? What does that mean? What does it look like for us today? More importantly, what is the condition of God's altar in your life today? There's no evidence in this passage that this altar was voliciously torn down. In this particular time, this particular season, there were no wars going on in that particular area. We don't find any evidence that an enemy came through and trampled it down. So you've got to ask yourself, well, why was the altar torn down? What was wrong with it? And while we don't have any specific word on that, we do have a very, very powerful clue. We got it when Elijah said to Ahab, I am the only prophet of God left in Israel. You know what I think happened to that altar? I think it just deteriorated over the years from a lack of use. That's what I think. Just sitting out there in the weather. Nobody coming to offer worship and sacrifice before God. Just laid there doing nothing. Nobody was tearing it down intentionally. Nobody was doing anything mean or malicious. It just was not being used. And season after season, it stayed and stayed. And it's just like anything else. You put anything outside in the weather and you leave it there without any use. You come back in a year, two years, five years, and it's going to be deteriorating. I think that's what was happening to that altar. And I think that's where the altar is in America today. It's just deteriorating from lack of use. And it's time to be restored. And it says that he came and he began to build it back up. He got 12 stones and he put the stones in the right place. And he began, I can just see him working. So this is not acceptable. We got to do something. This is the altar of God and we got to pay attention to it. We got to be intentional to build this back up. And he worked for a while just to restore the altar. What does the altar represent in the Old Testament? Uh, let, me, let me share a couple things about it. First of all, it represented a particular purpose of worship. It's where sacrifice was offered. It's where worship took place. It was the sacrifices of praise, the sacrifices of thanksgiving. It was the sacrifice of confession and repentance. It was the, the peace offerings. It was the people coming together for a particular purpose, and that purpose was to worship Almighty God. The first altar we see in Scripture is found in the book of Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 8. And it's when, when Noah and his family came off the ark, and they realized that, that the world had been destroyed, but they had been redeemed. That they had been saved. And immediately, Noah built an altar unto the Lord and began to worship him and to lead his family in worship. And since that time, we see the altar as a, as a place that had a particular purpose for worship. But, but I want you to notice something else. Not only was it a particular purpose, but it was a particular place of worship. It became a gathering place. It was a particular thing at a particular place where people met together at a particular time to worship the Lord. People came together around the altar of God as worshipers 
see, one of the, one of the problems that, that I, I think we're going to have in this whole new ideology about worship taking place electronically. Now, now I'm glad we do this. And I think there's a particular time for it. I think it's necessary. And, and granted, we've come a long way since we were back there in that back little dark room first few Sundays. And we've learned a lot to, to how to bring worship to you and to those who aren't coming on campus. And, and we hope that God continues to, to, to use that and to do that. But let, me, let me just share this with you. One of the things that we sacrifice, that we suffer from, the further away from corporate worship we get, is something we like to call fellowship, and we miss fellowship. But let me give you another word. I want to give you the word accountability. The further away we get from meetings like this where the people of God have a particular place and a particular time of worship, the lower the accountability that we have to be a people of worship. And Satan is going to use that. You know he will. He's going to use that distraction. I mean, I can remember uh, in those, those first weeks when we would record the service on Thursday and then I would be able to watch it with the family on Sunday as you were watching it. I remember how easy it was to get distracted. I'm serious. You know, we, we watch it out in the yard sometimes because we could gather in the yard safely and I, we'd invite some, some people and some neighbors to come and gather in the yard and, and I'm trying my best to watch. Of course, I, I don't particularly, didn't particularly care for the preacher. <laughs> you know how that goes. But I found myself distracted, kind of looking around and neighbor's dogs running through the yard and it's like, hey. We're just having a craving to get up and go get another cup of coffee. It's just right over there. Or let's wait and we'll do it this afternoon. You, you heard that one? Or tomorrow, we can, it's just recorded so we can do it tomorrow, the next day. And what we began to see is the further we got away from this moment right here, the less accountability there is. And God calls us to stay together, to come together. That's why it says, listen, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and you know this passage, but in verse 24 it follows, but listen, listen to the surrounding. I know we've used this to kind of support coming together, but listen, he tells us why. And let us be connected, or no, excuse me, let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. To encourage one another. To hold each other accountable. To be there for each other. I think that's a critically important part. That's why I said, as, as we were beginning uh, this time a moment ago, I said, that song that we just sang. I could have sang it at home by myself or in a small group. But it made a difference being here with you. And singing with those brothers and sisters who are here holding me accountable and holding each other accountable. So yeah, we, we miss the fellowship and that's important, but we also miss the accountability the further we get away from the altar. And we need to restore that. 
And so I'm just praying and praying that, that the time of corporate gatherings will take on new and fresh meaning as we move forward through this time of pandemic. As people start coming back, they'll come back with a new energy and a new excitement about being together as the people of God. And it'll take a new place in our church and in our culture. And I'm, I'm also praying that what we learned while we were not here, that individual worship will continue. And we'll continue to find our place and our purpose there. And we'll stay in our daily time together. And we'll stay uh, in front of those great venues of, of ministry and service that we find online and other places that we'll continue to do that as well and we'll find a great balance there and that the altar of worship will be restored in our lives that's where he started the second thing we see here was not not only must the altar be repaired but let's look at verse 33 next he arranged the wood cut up the bull and placed it on the wood next he cut up the bull and placed it on the wood. What was the bull? Say that again. Sacrifice. The bull was the sacrifice. He wasn't there empty-handed, but he placed the bull, all of it, on the altar of the Lord. It was the appropriate sacrifice. It was the, the, the total sacrifice. And so we find in order for true worship to be restored, the altar is first repaired and then the sacrifice must be offered. The full sacrifice must be offered unto the Lord. They didn't go in empty-handed. And I think it's significant that, that it's the full sacrifice. We read in the minor prophets, Amos and, and, and prophets like that, where the, the, the priests are criticized because they weren't willing to place the full sacrifice on the altar of the Lord. Oftentimes they would take a bull or a lamb or something and they would take the choice parts and they would take them home and just offer what was left on the altar of the Lord. But here it says, no, he, he cut up the bull, placed it on the altar. Is sacrifice a part of your worship experience you might say well pastor we don't we don't do those kinds of sacrifices anymore and and you're right in that we don't do animal sacrifices in hebrews chapter 10 let's look, let's look at this passage right quick hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 and 12 Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time which can never take away sin. But this man, that, that's Jesus, but Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Obviously, Jesus was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices, so we're not doing those animal sacrifices anymore. I get that. But does that mean we get to come before the Lord empty-handed? Oh, no. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, for instance. Here we find, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Look at that verse carefully and let me ask you, what is the sacrifice that God requires of you today? You. You. 
and me. And we come before the Lord with a willingness to offer a full sacrifice unto Him. You remember that pie philosophy I talked about a while ago where we seem to be content to give God a little piece of our pie, a little piece of our lives, and all the rest of it, that's up to me? That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to bring all of our lives before Him. He wants to be the central ingredient of our pie, of all of our life. He wants to be there at work with us and be in our family experience and be in our recreation and be in our education and be in every aspect of our lives. And we bring our life before him and lay it on the altar, all of it, not keeping the choice parts for ourselves, but giving it all over to him. As I said earlier, I think in the West, we, we don't get that as much as other peoples around the world. We tend to want to bring only a portion of ourselves before the Lord. And that is not acceptable. The full sacrifice must be offered. Then, in order for true worship to be restored, the power and presence of God must be preeminent. We got to depend on Him. We got to make this all about Him. He says, listen as I read on, down in verse 33 and following. He put the bull on the altar. We see that. And then he said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burnt and on the wood. Then he said a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and even filled the trench with water. Ha <laughs> ha. Elijah was saying, this is all about the presence and the power of my God and nothing else. You know, think about this. I can't tell you what you would have done, but I can tell you what I would have done. I know me. I'm just going to be transparent with you for a second. I know me very well. You see, I'm figuring at this point that the worst I can do is a tie. Right? They've already had their turn, and they got a big fat zero. Worst I can do is a tie. Now it's my turn. They're stepping back. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm scouring the top of that mountain for the driest, rottest wood I can find. That's what I'm doing. I'm going to do everything I can do to manipulate the situation so it's going to be easy for my God. So just a little spark is going to get it done. But not Elijah. He said, no, there is no situation or circumstance that will surpass the power of my God. Do you believe that this morning? Oh, listen, listen, that truth alone will help you sleep at night. I mean, it's pretty bad out there at times. It's pretty frightening. What are we going to do is the question. Where is it going to end? We don't know. But we must realize that there is no circumstance that will surpass the power of our God. And that's what Elijah knew. And he said, let's just make sure that everybody knows that this is not going to be a coincidence when that wood catches on fire. 
but it's going to be about the presence and the power of our God. See, we're going to understand what true worship is all about when we come face to face again with the true glory and majesty of our God. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says the prophet Isaiah was in the temple on the Lord's day, and then he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And it says, then the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and he became a man of worship in that moment. He was worshiping like he had never worshiped before. One of the reasons our worship has become weak and complacent is that we have allowed our view of God to become weak and complacent. When we see the glory and the majesty of our God and we understand that coming into his presence is an awesome thing and he is an awesome God, we should desire not only to be there but be ready to fall down before him. Tell you what, uh, hear my heart well this morning. For Christian believers, for those who believe in Jesus Christ and follow him, the church should not have to sell itself. Worship should not have to sell itself. Worship should be a natural expression of the fact that we know that we are now children of the Most High God. And one of the greatest privileges that we have as His children is that we are invited into His presence. When I was about 26 years old and had just started pastoring at Parkwood Baptist Church, little blue-collar church in the, on the west side of Louisville, Kentucky. It was a very graying congregation, very small. We had no student ministry at all. We had no children's ministry at all. Very few programs. Tiny little choir. I was the only staff person. I went to a pastor's conference. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm in this little pastor's conference, and I'm listening to these speakers, and they're, they're usually all from great big churches, and they're talking about the great and mighty things that they're doing, and I was feeling pretty small. And then he said, let's go into some breakout rooms, and so we broke up, and we got in. There was a, just a handful of us, and, and the guy that was leading the breakout room, he said, all right, what is it that you guys offer to your community in the name of Christ? And I just kind of melted into my seat and got kind of quiet. And he went around, and these guys were talking about these big programs and trips and retreats and experiences. And I knew my time was coming. And he finally got around to me. And here's what I said. I said, right now, Parkwood Baptist Church has this to offer. We offer an opportunity for anyone who desires to walk in our door on a Sunday morning and worship the Most High God. And we can start with that. And I'm here to tell you after 30 plus years of ministry and multiple programs, I still haven't found anything better to offer than what we started with. Elijah said, people, let's remember who our God is. Let's pour a little water on this thing. 
Oh, but that's, that's, that's going to be, that's enough, Elijah. No, let's do it again. Oh, that, that's, Elijah, are you kidding me? No, let's do it again. Let's remind our people of the glory and the majesty of our God. That'll call us back to authentic worship. And then the last thing, and I'll close with this. In order for true worship to be restored, the worshiper, that's you and me, we must be surrendered. we got to get out of the way and let God be glorified. Listen to what he said, verse 36 and 37. I want to finish this. Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word, I have done these things. Did you see Elijah just step right out of the way? He could have said, Lord, oh, let these people know how great a prophet I am. Lord, this is my chance now. This is my chance to be a great leader among these people. Oh, God, do something so that I and your people will be glorified in this moment. But that's not what he said. God, get me out of the way. Sounds like John the Baptist. I must decrease so he can increase. See, one of the greatest detriments to worship of Almighty God in the last 50 years, I say this without apology, is the consumer mentality that we've adopted as Christians in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the line, slowly and surely, all of this started being about us and not about him. And if true worship is going to be restored, let's restore it with the right focus to say, God, we are here not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Father, that he prayed, Lord, that these people may know that you are God over Israel. Let your fire. Read the rest of that story this afternoon. That fire did fall. It didn't just burn up the altar. It lapped up the water. As a matter of fact, it says the dirt around the altar was consumed by the fire. It was so hot. Woo, I'm ready. Let your fire fall, oh God, as we seek worship restored. Let's stand together, please. Jason's going to come and lead us in a time of response with his team. I want you to consider the altar of your life today. What shape is it in? Like so many others, is it deteriorating from a lack of use? Is it time to reestablish that intentionality to restore and to rebuild that altar? And to begin to be a person of worship, Almighty God. Let it be restored in your life. As it's restored in your life, it will be restored corporately in our lives as well.